Conviction is brought to you by Three Rings Circus Productions. For links to our valued sponsors and all the show notes from this podcast, please visit our website, threeringscircus.com.au. This is the story of Craig Gouzet. In our previous episode, Craig gave us an introduction into his world of police surveillance as he and his team successfully uncovered the identity and subsequently arrested one of Australia's most heinous sexual predators, the North Shore Rapist. The success of this operation led to a promotion for Craig into the State Major Incident Group. In this episode, Craig and the team are assigned to investigate two professional criminals who have fled Australia's major southern metropolis, Melbourne, after that city's infamous gangland wars in the late 1990s. Unlike the North Shore Rapist, these were not impulsive, opportunist criminals. They were organised, well-connected, and as we will learn, protected. Yeah, the State Major Incident Group was a place that the police had for obviously major incidents that had happened and a lot of them were quite secretive so I was sent over there, I'd, I'd been there before actually for um, an escapee that went rogue and was breaking into hundreds and hundreds of homes over about a four month period. I was quite familiar with the setup over there and um, went in with the other couple from my office and after signing all the agreements that uh, it was secretive and the reason why it was secretive was because there was a hint of uh, corruption within the targets. We had two major targets, one was from Melbourne and one was from the west of uh, Sydney in a little place called Norellan. Our Melbourne target was sort of linked to the underworld figures down there and at a later date everyone's familiar with a lot of the gangland killings that basically happened from 98 through to 2010. I think there was 36 major crime syndicate members that were murdered over that period. But it did start early on that and back in 1995 a bloke by the name of Greg Workman was shot dead over a $50,000 debt to drugs and then in 96 three guys got shot and that was again drug related and that was through the bikies. Uh, Francisco, Gary Francisco was the Melbourne target. He was built like a brick shit house. He was six foot something tall, big frame, good frame. He wasn't fat, he was a muscular frame. He had uh, a long ponytail with a uh, handle bar moustache over the front and uh, just looked like your typical bikey. Um, and he'd come up, obviously I'd say that um, he was afraid of what was going on in Melbourne at that time, the start of the, the murders and the hits in regards to the drugs and he wanted to team up with a bloke by the name of Bill Tracy. Bill Tracy uh, was known to him, they were associates. Our investigators had started the investigation in regards to uh, an informant who had said that uh, Francisco was coming up for this reason. He didn't want to produce uh, methamphet down in Melbourne for the fear factor and had decided then to team up with Tracy and Tracy had apparently mentioned that he was going to line up a premises out the back of Sydney in the country area of the Southern Highlands and uh, that was a go. We didn't know too much more about it and our job was to get out there in amongst them all and try and work out where Tracy was, where Francisco was, what they were doing 
and gathering intelligence. And that's basically what our, our job was. Uh, we had to dress different. We had to have different cars. It was quite different to working on the North Shore Rapist and around the Sydney area. So we had to change all our demeanour. It was more the old football shorts and singlet with, with uh, work boots and things like that. It wasn't long, you know, we were given a, a, an address out at Norellan where Tracy was believed to be living. It was a new subdivision, actually, and it wasn't far off the rural land. And we went out and had a look from um, far away, actually, and uh, found that from the farmland, probably about a kilometre away, we could set up a really good scope uh, and get his house and the front of his house. Um, pretty much every time he opened his garage door, we could, we could see that it was full of gear. We didn't know what sort of gear, but we could uh, work out when he was leaving the house and when he was coming back and whether someone was visiting him. So he stayed a fair distance away and we had a car close for that first week. Anyone who came and visited, they drove out from the, uh, the new estate, would get their car numbers and send it through to our investigators until we started to get the, the know of who was around the place and what was happening. We soon found out that uh, Francisco was up and he was in a car, generally in a, in a different car, he'd have a hire car and uh, he would be at Tracy's place every so often and uh, generally too they'd go in the afternoon down to the Norellan Hotel and they'd all meet there. There was a couple of them by this stage. Uh, the third member was a bloke by the name of Kevin Holland, just an old hardhead criminal who'd been in trouble all his life. Uh, been past his place, he lived uh, out in the southern highlands in a, a bush property. I can remember doing surveillance on this bloke in the initial stages and, and just having a look from a distance and he must have loved his boxing, he'd go out in the afternoon, he was a bit of a thug looking guy, solid build, big big moustache but he used to love getting on the heavy bag in the afternoons and having a hit out in the barn. So these three guys used to meet in the Norellan Hotel and we, we sort of noticed that they used what we called the gold phone. In those days, you know, you had the old big red phones and in the Snorellan Hotel it had, the, had a gold phone, which is just a public phone that everyone used. Although mobile phones had been available from the late 1980s in Australia, the public phone was the favourite device for the criminal. Multiple users were a perfect cover for any surveillance from authorities, or so they thought. We'd be able to um, then off-call charge records from that phone, work out who was ringing, and for sure they were Melbourne numbers. And again, we used this as our intelligence base and we could actually work out who they were talking with in Melbourne. And uh, we suspected that these were going to be some drug suppliers of chemicals. So our investigation was told that they were going to set up a methamphet lab out in the Southern Highlands. Methamphetamine is a very potent central nervous system stimulant originally developed in the 1800s. Illicitly manufactured, meth is usually made by combining ephedrine or pseudoephedrine with other chemicals that are often poisonous or highly flammable. The mixture is then added to a solvent such as gasoline and heated to crystallise. The heating process is particularly dangerous as there is significant risk of fire and explosion. The waste materials left behind are also highly unstable and combustible. And they were obviously building up all the supplies. They're not easy to come by. Your pseudoephedrine is probably the hardest thing to come by with these methamphets, and then you've got all your, your acids and other chemicals that are linked to it. Precursor drugs, depending on what you are going to make, but generally if you have... Um, Pseudoephedrine, they're making amphetamines. They could make tablets, they could make powder, speed, common name. And back in those days, it was speed, um, MDMA, all those sorts of things. 
combination, there's usually one main precursor drug, this one being pseudoephedrine, and then all your other precursor drugs, are acids and different chlorine bases for cleaning and compounding. And again, a lot of the guys who are doing these cooks, they're not pharmacists, they, they've just learned in jail. And uh, there's a lot of bodged up cooks and half the reason why you get overdoses is because they throw any cocktail mixture in there. But uh, we're pretty much on track with you know knowing what they were doing, where they were going, and it wasn't until they'd actually had a meeting at the pub on one particular day, and uh, a fourth member came into it, and we didn't know who it was. He came in a ute, an old ute, and we did a transport check on the, there. We did a transport check with the, the police. You know we can get all the details from the registration, and it was uh, Bill Tracy's de facto son and the stepson appeared to be the, the gopher of the crew. If they needed things, he was the one. Greg and the team had established who was the chef and who were the dish pigs in this chemical hot pot. The next question was, where was the kitchen? It would also seem obvious enough to arrest them immediately. As we will discover, things aren't always as simple as they seem. For now, it was a waiting game. We couldn't bring any other people into the job because of the suspicion that there was police involved. Uh, there was only a certain number of investigators back in the office and there was only uh, four of us working in the field covertly. So it was, it was one of those tough jobs where you never knew when you were going to be home. Um, you didn't know your hours. It was depending on what the, the criminals or the suspected criminals were doing and what they were planning and the information that would get at last minute. And uh, yeah, it ended up being like a two hour drive to and fro from work. So there's four hours sitting in the car, basically doing nothing but going to and from work. And then the rest of the time, you're either sitting around waiting for something to happen, which some days nothing would happen. So it was qu quite a hard job that way. But when it did happen, it happened uh, in a rush. We ended up getting a telephone intercept on the goal phone. There was a lot of drug talk. There was a lot of talk about chemicals started to give us information that um, they were planning on getting some chemicals brought up from Melbourne. And we just at this moment didn't know where or, or when they were going to do it. And it wasn't until one day after one of these meetings when they were in there and uh, Francisco had been in touch with his Melbourne um, cohorts that the uh, stepson of Tracy left and uh, went to a local shopping centre and this was sort of uh, early afternoon. So we decided to, uh, three of us follow him while one stayed at the hotel and uh, followed him through the local shopping centre and he had a water cash. And he went and bought a heap of shopping and it wasn't your fresh foods, it was a lot of tin food, a lot of powder food, uh, which spelled out something to us. And then he went to the local hardware and bought a brand new lawnmower. No questioning on money, nothing. Just wanted a lawnmower and off he went, bought the lawnmower and his ute. He took off and he took us to a new spot which would have been around this Norellan area for a long time. <laughs> Out southwest we went, drove for about 20 minutes, soon changed from uh, residential areas to very country-like area. A lot of properties, farms, etc. through bushland. I think it was a little place called Oakdale which was probably about uh, 20 kilometres southwest of Picton in the outskirts of Sydney's uh, southwest. It's a hard follow because you're on a more or less not dirt roads but they're just one laid roads and there's um, only one car in front and, and you behind or you've got a car in between but we eventually took him to a property 
but uh, was on a fork of a road. He went into the gate and obviously our first lead, eyeball surveillance car just kept driving and the next one slowed down and watched him open the gate and then our third one saw him drive in and was able to sit back and watch him drive into the farmhouse which was probably about a good hundred metres in the property. It was uh, low-lying sort of flat land, high grass, your average farmhouse I suppose with a, a shed or a number of sheds off to the side. We couldn't get a good look at it. It was a, a little bit of a distance off the road so you couldn't see exactly what was there but it was a property, property unfamiliar to us. We uh, had done checks on all our targets and knew that no one was associated to this address. So this was something exciting and uh, we, we got the information back to the investigators. And by the next day, we found out that the property had been leased in a different name. It was in the name of Tracy's de facto and she used her maiden name. A lot of the time, you know, we're doing searches on all the obvious things and nothing comes up and uh, these crooks obviously use what they can and they use her maiden name to lease the premises for six months and uh, we thought obviously this was going to be the place where they were going to do the cook and we saw that they'd bought a heap of canned food and powder food and that's so once they get into the cook they stay on the property as, as much as they can without leaving. It wasn't long after this that we you know we set up off this house then as our major target area and that the, the three came out Tracy Holland and uh, Francisco and started bringing things to the property. We couldn't see exactly what they were bringing, but we knew they were unloading things from Holland's place, which was probably about 20 kilometres away, and from Tracy's place, which we believed was the chemicals that was coming for the start of it. They would have had all their um, beacons and everything else to make the amphets, and uh, that's how it went on. It wasn't until that they... Um, had another conversation down at the Norellan Hotel that things started to uplift and started to change. We heard that uh, someone from Melbourne was going to come up with a, a large amount of uh, precursor drugs that were going to be then handed over to Tracy and Francisco. So without a blink, we were told that afternoon to start driving to Melbourne uh, down the Hume Highway. So for those who aren't in Sydney, it's, it's not an easy drive. You're looking at about a eight to 900 kilometre journey down south of Australia um, into Victoria, another state and that's what we did we just filled the cars and off we went there was four of us and uh, our job was to meet up with the Victorian police who were going to assist us with the initial part they were going to go through and follow the nominated driver and courier of the drugs from Melbourne and bring them out of Melbourne to us and then we were going to take over from there and I could see that this was going to be a long saga. I'd only packed uh, one set of clothes. I was ready to go home that afternoon, so you do get caught out a bit by these things. And uh, all the other boys were the same. <clears throat> we had uh, three other guys who were in the crew, and no one else had packed anything else. But here we were, driving down that afternoon with the information. And uh, I think we got down into Victoria, near the border, late at night, because we hadn't left till the afternoon and uh, bunked up in a hotel I think by about 1am and the next day sure enough I get the call from the Victorian police to say that uh, our suspect who was the courier had left Melbourne and was on his way and he's, he's pretty easy to identify and gave us a car number. It was an old um, Ford Fairlane, couldn't really identify the driver that well because we couldn't get that close but from the back the car had so much weight in it it wasn't funny. 
you couldn't see anything if it was in the back seat it was covered if it was in the boot it was covered but you could definitely uh, see the weight we also had the assistance of the victorian um, aerial surveillance which was great we didn't expect it so on the handover we had an aerial surveillance plane that was um, up a certain meterage that you know you can't hear it and it's just doing big loops so we were able to sit back on this journey and all we had to do was really make sure that he didn't veer off he didn't do anything if he did veer off and do things we had to get back up into an eyeball situation but he virtually uh, the the aerial plane which was fantastic just did big loops and just kept calling it <clears throat> it was just a continual call of north on the hume highway north on the hume highway through these towns we just had to make sure that we were virtually a minute behind out of sight and it wasn't until we sort of came up towards the approach of Sydney that we found out from our investigators on the on the phone, the telephone intercept, that um, Francisco and Tracy were going to actually be on the highway probably about 50 kilometres from a place called Pheasant's Nest, which is just near the Southern Highlands. Pheasant's Nest, there's a dual service station. We, we all knew this service station because we'd filled up there before. And it, it's one of these dual service stations on each side of the road. So you've got a three-lane highway going north, a three-lane highway going south. On each side, you've got the Pheasant's Nest service station. Underneath the six lanes is a small walkway that you can fit a car. So you can drive from one service station on the south side through this walkway, which no cars usually do it, but you can do it, onto the north side. So we didn't know whether they were going to meet and do a handover and a swap on the south side or are they going to go over to the north side so we had to set up our surveillance on both sides i'd gone over done a u-turn and came back and sit in the service station on the, the north side or one of our other operatives stayed on the south side our third guy was just in between and our fourth member was following up up the rear when we did get about the 50 to 40k mark off the service stations in a little uh, side dirt road we noticed that uh, francisco and tracy were parked there and waiting in the car, just watching for other cars that would be following the crook from Melbourne. And as I said, luckily there was three of us in front, so we were never even looked at. It wasn't until the car from Melbourne came past that Tracy and Francisco joined in behind to watch to see whether he's being followed. So we were sort of set up, which was perfect, and just waiting for the aerial surveillance to call them in. So they followed the Melbourne suspect into the, the southern side and uh, told him to park, which was the previous instructions, and they came up after being satisfied that there was no follow, and they came up and told him to follow them. So they did what we thought they may have done, is go through this little walkway under the six lanes onto the opposite side. Again, it was just another counter-surveillance technique that they thought they were using to make sure that no one was following them. And, of course, we were already set up on the other side. I'd got out. I had a, uh, a small esky in the side of the esky i had a hole cut and i had uh, a video camera shoved in there um, i had a red four-wheel drive vehicle with fishing rods actually attached to the front uh, i had them in the back before but i'd thrown them out in the front i threw the esky on the ground next to the car and as our melbourne syndicate came in he actually parked very close to me i just went about eating something on the side of my car and i pointed the the esky in his direction to video Tracy and Francisco drove in. They were satisfied there was nothing peculiar about things and spoke to him within about two minutes. There was no, no formal uh, meeting between them. <clears throat> within two minutes, they were in the, his car and took off. 
we still had our, had our uh, aerial surveillance in the in the area, so we used them. Our Melbourne identity stayed there with Tracy's car in the service station with me. And we just got the aerial surveillance to then follow Francisco and Tracy in the Melbourne car out to the farm in Oakdale where they were seen to unload all the contents. It took about an hour. And meanwhile, I was just in the car park with our guy. I got the chance to get in close to him. He went in to buy some food and drink at the service station, so I decided just to go in and buy something myself. Tried to get some uh, close-up photos. Got a really good description of him. Um, he had tattoos in his arms, so I got the description of all the tattoos because later on, we, you know, we had to identify him. I'm sure we knew from the telephone intercepts, but to um, be positive with our evidence, that was the way to go. Tracy and Francisco came back not long and uh, just virtually handed the car over to him without anything really being said, and off he went. We just let him go. He had done his job. The car was empty. You could see by the look of the car, it was definitely empty. There was nothing in there. And uh, from our other surveillance in the air, they were able to identify that the, the car had been taken there and what appeared to be goods taken out and put into the farmhouse. So it was a great uh, start to the job in that uh, we'd identified the place where the cook was going to happen. The bulk of the drugs, precursor drugs, now had been transported up and we'd already followed a number of these precursors being out and they were ready to go. The stage was set. The kitchen for the cook had been established and the chemical ingredients had arrived. Why not arrest them now? There is a very important legal reason for this and it's crucial to the ultimate conviction of these drug criminals. Craig explains. With the cooking of these drugs, it has to get to a certain stage before you can actually arrest them because they could actually say they're making a perfume, which is a case law. We had cooked years ago, I wasn't involved, but the police went in early and they actually said that they weren't making drugs, they were making perfume, and it was proven that at that stage of the cook, yes, they could make perfume. It was more likely, obviously, with their character, that they were making drugs, but they were successful in their... Uh, evidence that they could have made perfume. So it has to pass a certain stage of its cook is when it says, okay, it's a drug, it's not going to go back to being a perfume or anything else. We had worked out, obviously, that they were going to do the cook at this place, so investigators were working madly trying to get a listening device and some cameras set up in the, in the property again to give us a bit of a heads up at what stage they were at and what they were doing and where they were set up. And again, trying to get into these premises is really hard takes time. We managed to get the listening device application through the Supreme Court and it was all ready to go. And it was just a matter of getting the farmhouse now without anyone in there. I think it was a day or so later that uh, a window of opportunity came up that they had called a meeting down at the Neuralan Hotel and we had our team ready to go in. And that's what we did. While uh, we took them down there and had surveillance on the four main figures in the hotel, our entry team went in and found some pretty interesting stuff in the house, apart from the lab that was set up and, and gurgling away. They'd managed to get into the property undisturbed and um, found that on the windowsills of all the property there, these guys had set up these little tricky, I suppose, items. It was, it was a small container filled with cigarette ash, so when the window opened, the container would fall and the ash would fill everywhere over the floor and over the sill and it was probably their way of detecting whether someone had been in. They'd also um, raked sand all around the property. 
So that if there are any footprints through the sand, they'd realise that someone had been snooping around. The third thing that we were really interested in, they had a very high-powered rifle with a scope and a night scope on it, and it was set in a tripod at the front window. So they meant action if someone had come onto the property. As I said, they may not have suspected that police were onto them at this time, but in this sort of game, you do have other rival gangs that uh, can get the same information and come and rob you as well. We managed to get the listening device in and we took a, uh, a specialist in as well. When you're dealing with uh, methamphet labs, you have a special team that have a background usually in pharmaceutical. They could be police who have a background already in chemistry and pharmaceutical have an interest, so they become part of the DEA team that deals with this. We also have an independent pharmacist that goes in and later will give evidence as an independent officer, not officer, independent person, of what he sees and what he comes out of the samples that he takes. So we do take him in. It's a, a dangerous job for a civilian. There's obviously a lot of police around who are armed as well. So they managed to get in. We got the listening device set up and we were able to take a few samples of things that were there and everything obviously was looking towards a great methamphet cook and was just bubbling away. It was definitely at an early stage. We couldn't go in and arrest them. We had to sort of wait and guess. The pharmacist gave us a rough idea of three days it would take until it got to the stage. So uh, just everything was left as normal. We got in undetected. Um, again, I can't tell you exactly how we do that. I don't want to spoil the MO, even though it's been a number of years. I'll, I'll leave that. Tracy and Holland really sort of kept a wide berth of the farm. It was only Francisco and the, the fourth male, the young guy. He was virtually just there, I think, to help with the cook and just as a gopher, if Francisco needed something, he'd rip into town and get it while Francisco stayed on the property. It wasn't until we actually had another opportunity where they had a meeting and we decided to go back in and check the stage and make sure everything was still going ahead and the pharmacist called it and he said, yeah, we've got, we've gone to this stage where it's passed what they call the P2 and it was now a drug. And the information then got back to the head investigator in the office and he made the decision that it wasn't worth waiting around any longer. This is what we had uh, aimed to do, was to get them in the act. Um, didn't want to risk that losing any more evidence and anything like that. So the hard part now was to coordinate a raid the next morning. I think this was day five. We'd planned the day before that we were going to bring some local police in, the dog squad. We had to bring the SWAT team in because there was weapons involved. None of these police were actually told what was going on. They were told that uh, there was going to be a briefing at 4am at a local community centre that we'd organised and they had to be there at 4am ready for the briefing. I think we finished the briefing probably at about 5am uh, and we headed out slightly early. We knew what was going on and we were sitting off the premises and we had one off Tracy in Holland's place and we had the other two up near the farmhouse in case something went pear-shaped up there. I was actually up at the farmhouse probably with about 50 metres of the, the front gate. And it was probably about 10 past five in the morning, <clears throat> one of our operatives who was looking at Tracy, not expecting anything to happen, all of a sudden called, Tracy's out of the house, what's going on? Never ever had he been out this early. And it really threw things out. He uh, drove straight up towards the farm at a rate of knots and obviously we were very suspicious that something had been said. We didn't have Tracy's home line off. So there could have been a phone call made. This is what it's indicating. All of a sudden, Tracy's, you know, put his foot down. Now Blake's trying to follow him at, at this time of the morning along these, these roads, which are very quiet. And I think if Tracy's received this information from a, a corrupt cop, 
he's watching out the back and has seen that he's been followed. He's come up to where we were and our blokes just obviously called, you know, this is wrong, this is wrong, it's gone off, someone's, someone said something. We've had rung our uh, superior who was, who was running and told him the exact thing and he said grab him, grab him, arrest him now before he can do anything. So we had to intercept him in the middle of getting towards the farm and arrest him and they called uh, the arrest early. The SWAT team went straight in, bashed the door down, Francisco and the young fellow were in their bedrooms come running out. They were uh, taken down to the ground, handcuffed and, and secured and then uh, the detectives went round to Holland's place. He hadn't received any information luckily and he was still asleep at home. But uh, it was pretty true what we'd heard that uh, this was a corrupt job. Someone involved was corrupt. We didn't know who and it's always a worry, especially when you're dealing with firearms and this sort of level of, of criminal. We never found out who it was. Our suspicions obviously were with a certain number because there weren't that many police apart from the ones who had been working on it for the month. And it's really disappointing when you work on jobs like this and all of a sudden, in the last moment, information's leaked to these crooks and this is what happens. Luckily, everything was secured. We got the guys with what we suspected. Uh, the cook was still going, so we had to send our hazmat team in and uh, secure. They go in fully suited up in case there's any you know, explosions or chemical outbreaks and uh, had to turn everything off, secure it. And it's a long, long process of then securing everything and getting all the evidence. I'll tell you what, I, I was glad to drive out of there that day. I can remember getting home to, to Lisa. I gave her a bit of a heads up that I was coming home. And uh, she stopped me at the front door. She said, you're not coming in the way you are. You stink. I got hosed off at the front door, throwing a towel and up to the uh, shower. And then I was able to give, give them a, a cuddle and a kiss at home, all the kids. Again, at that stage, I had the, the three kids there. Um, Jessica, who was the oldest, and Tim and, and little Kylie, who was only about two or three at the time. With Tracy and Francisco safely in custody, it was time for Craig to take some well-earned family time. What he didn't know as he packed up the family car for a road trip up north was that something would happen on this trip that would change his life forever. I uh, was relieved at this point because, you know, I'd done a lot of jobs and non-stop and it was hard for the family and the boss said, take some time off, which I was glad. And I said to Lisa, you know, let's, let's get out of here and let's have some time off. We had a little holiday house which was owned by Lisa's family, which was only about, I suppose, 100 kilometres up the coast. It was a beautiful little place on the water. Uh, we could get up there and go uh, windsurfing and surfing just over at the, the nearest beach and fishing and had a pool so the kids were able to play in that. It was great just to get away with the family and, and think about nothing. There was a few phone calls from work, of course, just uh, follow-ups on different things and how everything went. But I had to go back for a large amount of paperwork for that job, but that was the last thing on my mind. All I wanted to do was just take it easy. While we're away here, it was, um, it was one of these uh, holidays where you're just so relaxed it was great, but Jessica came up to us one afternoon. We're sitting by the pool and she said, Mum, Dad, have a look at this. I've got a little lump here on my right elbow. We both looked at it and it sort of looked like the knobbly bit on the end of the elbow, but it was on the inside of her elbow and we felt it. Just a tiny little lump. I thought, that's weird. It's not like a bite or anything. There's no marks of a bite. Anyway, we said, oh, we'll check it out later. In the next episode of Conviction... Craig and his family are thrust into crisis as their eldest daughter, Jessica, is given a shocking diagnosis. 
At the same time, Craig is enlisted into a newly established elite surveillance unit set up to not only investigate organized crime, but uncover the identities of the corrupt police who protected them. The unit was completely dark and off the grid, and only police with the highest levels of security knew it existed. This was Project Gaimia.